Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, do y'all remember that we have a State of the Union tonight? No. I really didn't. <laughs> I did not. I thought it was like in the air. It's tonight? Yeah, it's tonight. Wow. Not for me. I, I think we know the state, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the State of the Union, bad. It is bad. <laughs> the State of the European Union, by contrast, is surprisingly strong, as we will discuss on this podcast. we're here today. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I am joined by Vox policy reporter Jerusalem Demsis. Hello, hello. And Vox senior correspondent Zach Beecham. Hi. And today, that was too high-pitched. I'm sorry, you guys. That was just going to go like, <laughs> So cheery. That is Zach's episode. normal pitch that he always talks in, and he's going to be using that pitch to talk today <laughs> about what's happening in Ukraine. I should probably do a more serious version for no, this ongoing I, war. Yeah, look, look, look. <laughs> We need to we need to dupe them with hope and slam them with truth, as we used to say in, in, in old Vox. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> we just got to be happy now before things get really depressing. So today we're going to be talking about what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, as a quick note, we are recording this episode on Tuesday morning, and because everything is happening super super fast, things may have changed by the time you hear this. Uh, we will add a link in our show notes to all of Vox's coverage, so you can read the latest articles by Zach, Jen Kirby. John Geyer, the rest of uh, Vox's team covering this, so you can stay updated. And part of what makes this so hard to follow for me as a war is that it seems like there are two battlefronts. So there's a literal military front between the Russian and Ukrainian forces inside of Ukraine, and then there's an economic front inside of Russia, which is where sort of a lot of European and U.S. leaders are, are exacting leverage. We're going to talk about both, but first, Zach, um, can you sort of walk through roughly where things stand militarily as we're having this conversation? Um, how much of Ukraine does Russia control? Is that even the right thing to be looking at to see how it's progressing? Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky question. A lot of the real-time maps that we're used to getting in conflicts, like, you know, during the wars with ISIS, you used to see ISIS controls this part of Syria or controls this part of Iraq. They're not really reliable at this point, uh, partially because it's so soon into the conflict. And partially because the Russian initial invasion is not designed or was not designed in the way that we kind of expected it would be, right? Instead of um, sort of progressing slowly and trying to cement their control over territory, moving forward incrementally, bringing the full force of their superiority when it comes to artillery and aircraft, which the Russians dominate in as compared to the Ukrainians, they tried this thing where they attempted to move really, really quickly and seize control of Kiev, the Ukrainian capital. The idea, as, as far as military analysts can tell, was that you would get the troops in there, you would topple the Ukrainian government, you would capture or kill the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, and then you would install a Russian puppet regime and that would be the end of it. And Russia would have won the war over the course of just a few days in the super lightning way. And it's worth noting that that would be a little reminiscent of what they did in Crimea in 2014, which is a peninsula in southern Ukraine that they took control of, basically annexed subsequently and now claimed to be part of Russia, though no one else acknowledges this really. Uh, they sent in a bunch of people quietly and quickly and basically seized the peninsula without firing more than a few shots. 
It really was a, it was an astonishingly rapid and effective takeover. They assumed, however, that the rest of Ukraine would be as easy to take over in 2022 as Crimea was in 2014, as far as we can tell. And that turns out to have been completely wrong, just completely wrong. So why is that completely wrong? Like, so my, my understanding is that in Crimea, there is like at least some genuine desire among some residents to reunite with Russia. And so there's some more popular basis. Is the difference this time just that the bulk of Ukraine is much more hostile or, or what's the difference as you see it? So I'd say it's a conjunction of two things. Part of it is that the population is more hostile in the parts of Ukraine that they've been attacking now. But the more important thing I think is that – the Ukrainian military has been preparing for this for quite some time. They had a lot of advance warning of this particular invasion thanks to the United States. And it wasn't clear how much of it they were taking seriously before the war. They made a lot of noise like the, the U.S. is exaggerating this. The threats are not as serious as they say. It seems perhaps in hindsight, again, really new. We don't know anything for sure that they were just saying that publicly and privately were preparing for a Russian invasion. Because when it came, the Ukrainians were extremely well prepared for what the Russians were doing. So if we're gonna get into like the sort of nitty gritty, the weeds perhaps of the, of the military tactics here, the Russians were doing is not using a traditional combined arms model, which is where you use different kinds and parts of military power put together to advance incrementally. So combined arms would mean aircraft, striking at the same time as tanks, striking at the same time as infantry or any components of those or artillery, right? You use it to ensure that any one part of your attack can't be countered with sort of a, a traditional countermeasure because that makes you vulnerable to an airstrike or to infantry attacks or something like that. Instead, they just sent like small numbers of troops forward and tanks operating without infantry trying to move very rapidly, which exposed them to – Ukrainian counterfire. It's really easy and there are lots of obvious things that you can do if you're a relatively effective military. It turns out the Ukrainian military is, contrary to a lot of estimates or beliefs before the war, to isolate, kill, and destroy the Russians. Two, two other problems with the Russian strategy. First, they assumed things would go so quickly that they would be able to not depend so heavily on, on needing to have logistics and resupply. That was not true. And you see Russian tanks and, and armor stalling out mm. on Ukrainian roads and uh, vehicles needing gas that they right. didn't have. And third, they didn't bring their air force to bear early on uh, in the full way that they did. Lots and lots and lots of Russian planes have not been involved in this conflict. The result is no air superiority. When you don't have air superiority, you're vulnerable to enemy aircraft. And so you, you can see these videos on Twitter. Uh, it's kind of wild to be able to see this stuff basically in real time on Twitter. Mm. So it's like a film from a Ukrainian drone. And they're they're up there and whatever air defenses the Russians have are not able to target them. And so they, they you see them bombing a, a Russian column, mm. right? And, and it's wild, but it's a, it's a demonstration of how poorly thought out the Russian advance was that they didn't have a countermeasure in place for the strategy which had been demonstrated in a war very near Russia that they paid attention to not that long ago. For me, as, as someone who's not someone who spends a lot of time thinking about foreign policy before this, a lot of the discourse – around Russia has just kind of been, this is an, you know, basically an evil mastermind, that their military and general state capabilities would be extremely sophisticated. There, over the past years, there have been so many headlines around Russia can hack our electrical grid pretty easily. The propaganda machine is extremely sophisticated. And in addition to all the things you've just laid out around the fact that they've underestimated the ability to take Ukraine quickly, it seems also on the propaganda side, they've really underestimated their ability to kind of wage the information war. You know, one example of this is that multiple state media outlets, they published this essay assuming that, quote, Putin solved the Ukrainian question forever. Um, basically, they presumed that Russia had taken over Ukraine and essentially annexed it into uh, this new union. And this gets published despite the fact that there are all these military problems that they're facing in Ukraine. And uh, it stays up for a significant amount of time. It's been taken down now, but there's an English translation um, uh, that you know that you can look at online. We'll link it in the in the show notes. And you know, stuff like this indicates to me that this is like not that sophisticated an operation, or is that like reading too much into what's going on here? So I think they made a mistake and they're recalibrating right now, right? Like as we speak, the Russian strategy is changing on all sorts of different fronts. But to answer your question, it seems that everything was banked on this idea of a rapid takeover. And the reason that Russia didn't bring its full propaganda capabilities to bear as far as we can tell domestically 
or internationally in like a context relevant or thoughtful way is that they, they didn't want the Russian population. Again, we're speculating, but this is what it seems like. They didn't want the Russian population to think that there was a full-scale war going on in Ukraine. In Putin's address, he calls it a special military operation. This is his speech declaring war. And that is what uh, Russian propaganda outlets like Russia Today have used instead of war to describe the conflict going on. That's a very deliberate choice, right? The, the idea is to downplay the significance of what's going on and to make it seem like it's just sort of an extension of what's been going on since 2014 in eastern Ukraine. And that way, you know, you don't get – the kinds of mass public outrage that you actually have seen in Russia. Like a lot of people in Russia are very unhappy about this war. There doesn't seem to have been any groundwork laid in terms of public opinion to try to get people on board with a massive military effort, again, because they seem to have assumed that it wouldn't be very hard to topple Ukraine. Um, so they're just like, okay, Russians, uh, you all will go along with it once we've retaken Ukraine and retaken from their perspective, right? Ukraine was a Russian imperial asset for a very long time prior to the uh, end of the Soviet Union. And they they just expected this to be a fait accompli, right? And then it wasn't. And they now are being completely outclassed in the propaganda war by the Ukrainians, because the Ukrainians are fighting for their lives. They're using every tool available. They're giving information, some of which is accurate, some of which is not, about what's happening. Some of it is direct footage, which can still be misleading but still tends to convey a more um, accurate and powerful impression of what's happening in the war. And then you have all these really moving videos of the Ukrainian president getting engaging in battle, uh, if not like you know holding a gun and firing it but like being with the troops in Kiev – standing out there for his country, not just you know, hiding away somewhere where the Russians can't get him. And all of this has created this narrative internationally of an embattled, incredible, brave Ukrainian resistance. And because the Russians weren't prepared for this to be a long campaign, they didn't have an effective counter-narrative. And at home, they don't have people believing that this like they needed to launch a full-scale war like this because they didn't expect it to be. So when you have Russian conscripts who are calling their mothers, this is a really clever Ukrainian propaganda tactic. They've set up like a phone line for uh, captured Russian soldiers to call their moms and they film them talking to them and you can see them crying. And, and look, it's sad in a lot of ways. A lot of these are 19-year-old conscripts yeah. who didn't sign up. They've been forced into military service. They have no idea – Honestly, they didn't, that they were going to be going into war beforehand. They were just told they were doing maneuvers on the border, I think because the Russians didn't want the operation to leak or for there to be dissent in their ranks because a lot of people don't like the idea of invading Ukraine. And you can see the toll in the way that people have risked the Kremlin's wrath to protest on the streets of Russian cities. So you mentioned uh, that Russia's recalibrating already. Um, there's obviously the propaganda war and, and it seems like that is – fairly decisively lost and it's hard for me to imagine how, how Russia gets it back. But like the war war, Russia has the second largest air force in the world. They they it might take some time, but it seems like they can establish air support superiority if they like put their minds to it and and like devote resources. Once they start treating this more like a serious war, more like something, I don't know if, if the the invasion of Afghanistan is a good is the last relevant example or maybe the Chechen war, like once they have that level of focus on it, do things get a lot easier for them? Do, do they start looking like they can take Kiev? Yeah, and just to, just to add on that, Dylan, like it seems like also once you start sort of taking that seriously, what that means is like prolonged sieges, right, of, of like these cities and a lot of civilian casualties are in place. And of course, you're entrenching a lot of resentment and anger at the state. And, you know, if Russia's goal is to either annex Ukraine entirely, and that means like holding on to the territory and governing it, or it's to install a, you know, Putin-friendly government in Kiev, uh, both of those things seem a lot harder if you have just an extremely angered and embattled citizenry that you have bombed. And also you have destroyed a lot of the assets, a lot of the infrastructure in place, which, you know, seems very counterproductive if your goal is to enfold it into Russia. So an important contrast here is between two recent Russian wars, the Russian attack on Crimea and conflict in eastern Ukraine and the Russian intervention in Syria on behalf of dictator Bashar al-Assad and trying to stand up his regime against rebel forces. 
So the Crimea invasion, as we already talked about, was was rapid. It was quick. It was low intensity. In eastern Ukraine, there's been a sort of ongoing conflict that has had low casualties, and and the Russians have tried to avoid more large scale overt deployments. And Syria is is a different story, right? In Syria, they demolished large portions of cities because they didn't care about what happened to the people who lived there. They wanted to make sure the Assad regime survived for a variety of reasons. And the Russian military, you've seen this uh, frequently in Russian conflicts, they have this really powerful ability to bring artillery and aircraft to bear in part because they don't have the scruples that other militaries do about killing civilians. So you can imagine large-scale attacks on Ukrainian defensive emplacements and infrastructure that are enabled by the fact that the Russians don't care, that they're going to massacre people. They are going to massacre people. And you're already starting to see this happening. The footage that's been coming out over the last 24-ish hours since before we started taping this podcast, you've seen bombs on, on just like clear civilian emplacements, right? Like places where people live. There's no reason to think that that there could be some a hospital yeah. bombings reported. Yeah. There's footage of like right outside um, city center, right? You can see the bomb going off in front of, I believe it's the city hall building. And it, it's... This is what Russia does when it is serious about winning a difficult war. And they deploy more troops. They bring the full might of the Air Force and their artillery corps to bear. And it's horrific. The other thing, Jerusalem, you mentioned, is sieges. And, you know, I I was talking to somebody yesterday who's not like a military person and asked, what does a siege in uh, modern warfare look like? And it's a good question, right? And the answer is it, it looks a lot like a castle siege, only on a much larger scale. Instead of one building or emplacement that you're besieging, it's an entire city. So you cut off supply lines, you destroy internal infrastructure to deny them food and clean water and medicine, and you carpet bomb the city, bomb it over and over and over again to ensure that anywhere the defenders are hiding, they die, right? That there's nowhere for them to go. And you don't move in your troops until they've been starved and bombed so badly over the course of weeks or months that there's only paltry resistance that could happen there. Russia did not want to do this for the reasons, Jerusalem, that, that you outlined. Right? They, they didn't want an angry, brutalized Ukraine under their control or set up by a, a puppet state, I think, is the more likely outcome that they would control from behind the scenes but would be nominally independent. But it, it is looking like that's where we're heading. And in that war, the Ukrainians will have a lot harder time resisting. I think basically every military analyst thinks as brave as the Ukrainians have been so far, their victories have come in significant part due to an incompetent Russian strategic plan. There's some disagreement among military experts as to whether the Russian military is just like not very good when faced with a more significant adversary than they've fought in the past. That's possible. We'll see. It would mean the war would last longer. But virtually everyone agrees that they should still be favored to win the conventional war with Ukraine. But they'll have to do so in a especially vicious way. I guess one question I've had, too, is just a lot of people have been lauding the U.S. military intelligence for its consistent calling of the fact that there was going to be a Russian invasion in the face of other analysts, independent analysts, who did not think this was going to happen. And, you know, obviously there's just been that kind of um, surface-level narrative. But one of the things that seems clear to me is that one of the reasons that, like, analysts may not have thought this was going to happen is because it has been so difficult to actually invade Ukraine and actually you know, satisfy Putin's objectives in the in the country. And so is, is that kind of why analysts were wrong? Or is there some reason why U.S. intelligence was, was correct here that uh, we didn't see independent analysts being correct on whether or not Russia was going to be invading? So it's hard to know exactly what made U.S. intelligence more accurate than other intelligence services or other governments uh, without having more of a window into the workings of these services than, than I have. What I can speak to is the sort of open source analysis, right? Like what – which experts in the public sphere were right about the invasion and which ones were wrong. And what you see in that divide is that the experts who paid a lot of attention to the military and logistical nature of Russia's deployment, like were literally saying these troops are here. These troops are there. This is what an invasion force looks like. It would be very expensive and make very little sense to keep them there for a long period of time. It's not sustainable. They're doing this. This buildup looks a lot like an invasion. 
those people were right. The people who looked at the political factors, who analyzed what it might make sense on a broader strategic level for Putin to do, almost all concluded like, okay, it's possible that he would invade, but it's stupid, right? It's a really bad idea. And it doesn't make any sense from the point of view of advancing any kind of Russian agenda in Ukraine. And they were right too. The problem is they just assumed that Putin wouldn't make such a massive, what appears to be a massive miscalculation. And in fairness to them as well, and and so Mark Galliotti, who we had on the weeds to talk about this a few weeks ago, was was one of these people. I think he put a thirty percent chance of, on an invasion. But part of his point was just that if it's a good feint, if they were just putting all their troops there to try to extract concessions from the West, it would look identical yep. to a, to a buildup. Um, that you you don't do a, an obviously fake buildup <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, and so there's part of me that looks at this and, and thinks like. Did he really think that he could get a promise that Ukraine would never join NATO and then once he didn't, felt like his bluff had been called and he had to do something? Or was this just the plan all along? I don't know <laughs> is, is, is the answer. I don't know. I, re- I really don't. Yeah. And I again, maybe there is somebody out there who knows that. But I think it's worth noting that U.S. intelligence had been warning that this was likely to be an invasion for quite some time. And it seems like they have pretty incredible visibility into Putin. There's a wild story in NBC News last night that talks about how Putin has started yelling at his subordinates, uh, which apparently he doesn't do, right? He's a kind of unemotional, cold guy, ruthless, brutal, vicious. But he does so in a calculated, calm fashion. But like to have him Trump-style screaming at subordinates, that's not normal for Putin. But like from a broader lens – like we know what's happening in specific meetings yeah. between Putin and subordinates. So the subordinates are telling us stuff. <laughs> Someone is. <laughs> maybe maybe the Americans turned the secretary uh, who was in the meeting. the building. Yeah. Or, yeah. Like there's, there's all sorts of different ways. But the point is like Russian counterintelligence has been abysmal. US, yeah. The U.S. has incredible visibility into what's going on in the Kremlin. And – that means that they probably knew some things going forward, and that's part of what led to the assessment that the invasion was imminent, the correct assessment. One thing about Putin's personal character that I keep thinking about throughout this is it looks like they're going to use siege warfare. They used siege warfare in, in Syria. In some ways, like the most formative experience, not of his life since he wasn't around, but like for Putin's family was the siege of Leningrad, that he grew up in Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. There was a over three-year Nazi siege of Leningrad from 41 to 45 or late 44 or something like that. Mass starvation, like lots of instances of cannibalism just because of lack of food and and like horrible humanitarian conditions. And relevantly, his brother died. His parents had uh, an infant son who at less than two years old uh, like died of starvation in the middle of the siege of Leningrad. And the idea that you would come up from that and and grow up hearing about that experience from your parents and from their friends and then do that is like so unspeakably cruel to me. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, he's he like when I describe him as unemotional, I don't mean it to be a compliment, right? Like we're talking about an unemotional killer, somebody who has been willing to engage in the infliction of mass suffering on innocent people for pretty much his entire time in power, from early on fighting in Chechnya all the way up through the current war in Ukraine. This has been a hallmark of the Russian military approach and strategic approach, including willingness to, to poison people in different countries, right, in ways that that threaten the civilian population that lives there, like in, in Britain, for example. It's, it's just, it's just a, a consistent and appalling trend of cruelty and meanness on the part of his character. So that part of it, even with those personal resonances, does not surprise me in the slightest. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. uh, But when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the U.S. and European response to Russia's invasion. Uh, Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. 
They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, so as we're recording this, uh, the U.S., Europe, Canada, other allied nations have signed on to a package of economic sanctions to try to punish and persuade Russia to relent. And that package, we'll, we'll talk about some of the details, but it goes a lot further than I at least was expecting. So Russia has been, with the exception of oil and gas, which Europe needs to keep the lights on, has been cut off from SWIFT, which is a messaging system that financial institutions use for trading. And even more significantly, it appears that hundreds of billions of dollars in reserve money that is owned by the Russian central bank has been frozen. And so as, as the central bank guy here, uh, let me just walk through sort of part of why that's such a big deal, yeah. because it might not be totally obvious. Can I, can I ask you, like, how even can international non-Russian agencies freeze the Russian central bank's assets? So the Russian central bank's assets are not held, like, physically by the Russian central bank, with the exception of gold. Their gold is physically in Moscow, which is actually a problem for them because it makes it a lot harder to sell. Like, most central banks keep their gold at the Fed in New York or at the Bank of England in London. And because other banks have their gold there, you can sell the gold to other banks easily. Gold is kind of heavy and hard to move. Um, and and so a, a, down, a downside of keeping it in Moscow is that like there aren't other central banks in Moscow. <laughs> and so if they, they needed to sell their gold, it would, it would be a problem. But most of their assets are not gold. Most of their assets are either treasuries, which they, they used to formally own, but they now seem to own in like some weird Cayman Islands accounts or forex swaps, which are basically sort of assets tied to the value of the dollar or other things versus the ruble. And these are all held in Western banks because the reason they exist is so that Russia can sell them or buy more in transactions with Western bankers to do stuff. So one thing they can do with this money is use it to plug budget deficits. So in 2008, they took 10% of this money, sold it off, used it to, to help pay for their budget during that downturn. They can't do that if these Western banks where all their money is aren't letting them do transactions. And it's not just their accounts. It's like owning a bond doesn't do anything if you can't sell it. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly difficult for them right now to sell these things. But the other thing is bolstering its currency, that sort of what makes currencies like the dollar and the ruble like change in value relative to each other is sort of the relative prices of assets that are denominated in those currencies. Um, and so when you sell dollar-denominated assets, that weakens the dollar relative to the ruble. When you buy ruble-denominated assets, that makes the, the ruble stronger. And so something that a lot of banks own large reserves like this for that kind of management purpose. Um, the U.S. isn't a good example just because we have our currencies like unlike any other currency in the world. But Canada is a good example. The Canadian government has, I checked this yesterday, like $100 billion in, in assets. They're mostly in dollars. Some are in euros. Some are in yen. And the idea is they can buy and sell those to make sure the Canadian dollar is worth what they want it to be worth relative to, to other countries. 
And the value of the ruble matters for a lot of things, but it really, really matters in Russia because they import almost everything. Like something like 75% of consumer goods in Russia are imported. They export wheat, they export oil and gas, and that's about it. Everything else they have to, to bring in. And when the ruble is worth a lot, it's really cheap to pay for all the stuff that they're, they're bringing into the country. When it's really weak, everything suddenly gets really, really expensive and you have massive inflation. And that appears to be what's happening now because they can't access their reserves. They can't sell dollar-denominated assets or buy ruble-denominated ones with the money they have there. That means they can't control the exchange rate. They're trying to do things so that they can control it through other means, like they've been ordering private businesses to sell off dollar-denominated assets to try to strengthen the ruble. And because inflation is so bad, they, they just raised interest rates to 20%, which is the highest they've ever been in Russia. You're seeing reports of, of mortgage interest rates of around 15 20%. Good Lord. So it's really bad. <laughs> um, it, 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 it seems like it's, uh, it will at the very least set off really disastrous and socially disruptive inflation, possibly cause a lot of bank runs with Russians trying to pull their money out and get it into dollars or euros as quickly as possible so it doesn't lose value. Anyway, my point is simply these are really dramatic measures. And I, I keep seeing comments from experts on central banks being like, nothing like this has ever happened before. We've done this to Venezuela and Iran, but Russia is not Venezuela or Iran. Um, and and it's just like a, an incredible escalation compared to what we think of as sanctions. But Zach, I'm sort of curious how you see that playing into Russia's decision-making, if at all. I mean, it's helpful here to look at the the literature and political science on sanctions. A bunch of IR scholars have been debating the use and effectiveness of sanctions for, for years now. And the findings are really complex, right? Like when we were all prepping for this episode, we read a basically a literature review of some of the different findings. And you can see it's like – it's very nuanced and subtle when sanctions work, when they don't, what kinds of sanctions work, what study finds which effect, et cetera. Uh, but like one of the big broad takeaways, if I can simplify this to a degree, is that sanctions don't typically change a country's behavior on their own, right? You can't just sanction a country and then they're like, OK, we've suffered so much economic pain. We'll give in to whatever you want. That almost never happens. And I don't expect it to happen in this case. The reason why is I think fairly intuitive is that when a country is engaged in a significant enough behavior that a large country wants to sanction them for it, it's something they really care about, right? It's really important to them and they're willing to suffer a significant amount of pain in order to accomplish whatever the objective is. And in this case, Putin has this deep belief that a Western-oriented Ukraine is an unacceptable state of affairs, both for ideological nationalist reasons and for some national security reasons. They're kind of blended together in his mind. It's hard to separate them out from each other. But for those reasons, right, if he thinks this is an existential threat to Russia, or at least it could pose an existential threat to Russia, he's not going to give in to economic pain. And I expect that's not what's going to happen in this case. What could happen, plausibly, is a something some version of what's happened with Iran in the nuclear negotiations before Trump decided to get rid of those, where you trade sanctions relief as part of a broader concessions package. Now, what that looks like in this case is very far from clear. Again, we're in the middle of a war that Russia intends to win. So their thinking, as far as I could tell, was we will suffer from sanctions but we'll win the war and then we will force the rest of the world to deal with the fact that we've won the war. And they'll relax their sanctions eventually. Sanctions hurt Western economies too. They're not going to keep this up forever. And if we have a successful occupation and installation of a puppet regime in Ukraine, they'll just like – they'll give up eventually. Right. The problem is the sanctions are significantly more painful than the Russians expected and they're not winning the war quickly enough. So it creates a possibility for a negotiated settlement where you – Ukraine actually maintains a degree of independence. The question is how much the Russians want that and how much they value the economic stuff versus that. And th that I, I just don't know at this point. There's also this weird kind of equilibrium that Europe is trying to go for where they don't want to create problems for their energy supply coming from Russia. And so they have these really tough sanctions, but they want to keep 
buying oil and gas from Russia. And that means that like Russia, I guess, is collecting dollars for that oil and gas, but then can't actually spend those dollars or convert them into a spendable currency. So it's like, I don't know how long that can last. Like, why would Russia continue allowing that to happen. Um, It does seem like, you know, obviously they don't want to completely cripple their economies. They wouldn't want to just stop selling gas. But it does seem like if this goes on for a significant amount of time, you could see this turn into a situation. And and Zach, you let me know if you think there's a reason why this wouldn't happen, where Russia is actually has a lot of control over European energy sources and can inflict a ton of pain, both on consumers who are also voters who may actually turn against um, what right now is pretty popular sanctions against the Russian um, regime. Yeah. The thing about that is it's kind of a mutually assured destruction situation. Russia needs that money too. They need to sell the oil and gas to keep their economy going. So if they cut off their exports to Europe, they're damaging themselves and they're in a much worse economic situation right now than Europe is. The question is the extent to which the Russians are willing to court pain to try to accomplish the sort of objective that you're describing. It's also possible, and you've seen this in some cases, that that kind of economic statecraft backfires, that if they're trying to put pressure on Western governments that are really strongly pro-Ukrainian and popular sentiment, it's remarkable, right? You see a huge majority of German citizens in favor of their chancellor's plan to triple military spending, okay? Like, think about that. Germany, whose entire foreign policy since World War II has been built around the national shame of World War II and not strengthening their military, has proposed to triple their defense budget, functionally rearmament, right, into a real military power. And it's widely popular among the German citizens. Yeah, what one poll was 78% of Germans agree with that proposal. So it's extremely popular. And that that speaks to the resolve and, and the degree of sympathy among Europeans for the Ukrainian cause right now and the fear that they experience of a Russian military invasion and war, right? You build up a military deterrent because you want to deter. It's not that Germany wants to go to war with Russia. Uh, And that to me speaks to like maybe if the Russians try to drive up gas prices to make people mad, the Europeans rally around their leadership and are like, we won't be bullied around by Russia. That's entirely possible. Again, it has happened with economic sanctions before. Again, will it happen? We're in totally uncharted territory. There's never, as Dylan said earlier, there's never been a country as important in the global economy as Russia that's been cut off after being integrated into it, right? Like the the Soviet Union was kind of a hermetically sealed communist economic power. That's why the US couldn't really use sanctions very effectively against it. It was never part of the world economy to begin with. They didn't even have a currency really, that the ruble wasn't traded against other currencies. And so when say Pepsi had to sell stuff in the Soviet Union, the Soviets would pay them in Stoli vodka. Like that's true. They they would do barter trades for vodka. And then at some point they ran out of vodka and gave them a bunch of former Navy ships. Um, oh. What? <laughs> yeah. I, I genuinely didn't know that. Wait, there what were, did Pepsi do with these ships? Uh, they sold them for scrap metal, but there was a very <laughs> a very brief period in which Pepsi was arguably one of the largest navies in the world. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. Should be allowed? I don't know. Well, they, I don't think they had the manpower. To, <laughs> <laughs> for the purpose of, of fun internet listicles, they were listed <laughs> as, as one of the more important. Like, anyway, um, yeah, it, it does – it seems unprecedented. I wanted to ask you about sort of the extent of the EU reaction since part of what's what's been surprising to me about this is just the number of – so there's the German decision to rearm. But even more surprising in some ways to me was uh, Switzerland broke neutrality for the first time since the Napoleonic Wars. Sweden has, has announced like their paying for arms shipments, uh, Sweden, which successfully stayed out of World War II and has, has been studiously neutral for a long time. What do you think is like motivating this like renewed European consciousness and sort of how how is that going to sort of affect the conflict as it plays out? So there are like a few factors at play. The first one, uh, which is probably the most significant one, is fear, right? At really a fundamental level. And not like fear in, in the sense of feeling weak, but fear in the sense of feeling vulnerable, right? When you have a war, like a really large-scale war in Europe. This isn't like the the conflicts in the Balkans in the 90s, which were internecine civil wars functionally between countries that were trying to decide where the boundaries would be in independent states, a civil war inside the former Yugoslavia. Um, this is 
a full-scale interstate war of a kind that we have not seen since World War II. And the reason you're making all these World War II parallels in this comment is because Europeans remember it really well. <laughs> they do not want anything like it to happen again. They can't have a continental-wide war. And so there's a sense that Russia needs to be deterred and punished for this kind of behavior so they don't try it again with another country on Europe's eastern flank. And so I think it's fear of Russian expansionism more than anything else and fear of another devastating continent-wide war that is motivating countries to come off the sidelines and start taking more aggressive actions. But another factor, less geostrategic and more remarkable, and I don't, I don't know if this is how true this is, but it some of it appears to be Vladimir Zelensky, right? He <laughs> – it's very funny. He's a former reality TV star. He won Ukraine's Dancing with the Stars. He's uh, the Ukrainian voice of Paddington. Yes, Paddington Bear. <laughs> uh, there's a video that you can watch on YouTube, and this is real, of him playing the piano with his penis. Um, oh, <laughs> hundred percent this happens. Whether or not he's actually playing the piano with it or not, but he's doing Hava Nagila. He's Jewish. He's doing Hava Nagila and he's like shaking his hips and banging on the piano on Ukrainian television. I wish this was a like, video so everyone could see Dylan's face right now. I support all culture. <laughs> this is this is all real. And you know, it's it's silly. It's it's ridiculous, but it's it's ridiculous in a way like the former you know, former star of The Apprentice being the American president, only instead of someone who is sort of mean and cruel and selfish and, and kind of dumb, you have a guy who is really beloved at this point by his population and is harnessing his powers of, of persuasion and theatricality and a sense of the dramatic. Not It's not like he's lying, like performing in the classical sense of being someone he's not, but he has this real ability to communicate with people that we kind of thought was a joke before he won the presidency in 2019. He also played the president on TV, by the way. He played the Ukrainian president on television right. um, before he became president. It's like if Martin yeah. Sheen became president. One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant, tight-ass club, in this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. Right. And then did an amazing job. <laughs> right. And so there's this call that he has with European leaders uh, after the onset of the war where he, he is incredibly emotional and he tells them at the end of the call, this is probably the last time you'll see me alive. And it apparently – there's a piece of the Washington Post about this – totally transformed the tenor of the conversation between European leaders. Beforehand, everyone was hemming and hawing about what kind of sanctions they wanted to impose. Like the Italians wanted to carve out so they could continue to sell luxury goods to Russian oligarchs. Right? That kind of like, eh, we're not really taking this seriously. But again, if the, if the post-report of the European attitudes are accurate, Zelensky's appeal really actually got to the leaders on the call and helped stiffen their resolve and motivate them to a kind of pan-European solidarity. And we typically – and by we, I mean the, the sorts of people who work at Vox and think like political scientists and economists tend to think about structural factors as being the things that cause things, you know, the imperatives of national security, economic concerns, even ideas that are really significant and powerful like nationalism. But sometimes global politics really does depend on the personal features of the leaders in power. And it wouldn't surprise me if Zelensky's personal charisma – played a significant role in activating latent European sentiment about this. Well, let's make that perspective structuralist and voxy. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's also just like what information technology does to interactions between states. I mean, if you can get on a Zoom call and like, you know, have a normal conversation with them and they're like, I'm about to be potentially murdered by the Russian state, like that is very different than like, uh, your ambassador coming to you and saying, I have this letter that I just received and it was written two weeks ago and like here is now the contents of the letter that was – like it's so far removed from you such that you can be a lot more removed and technocratic. And I would imagine it's like not clear to me on net like whether this is like a positive development. But in this situation, it does seem good that people are you know made aware very clearly about the real human toll that's being enacted upon Ukrainians and that is happening via social media. I mean as someone who – is on TikTok uh, more often than I would like to admit. You know, it is pretty clear that there is an uh, side note. There's a lot of misinformation on TikTok, so like, don't take yeah, yeah. every single <laughs> thing you're seeing on there seriously. But uh, what you are also seeing is just like the ability to see like 
as part of a feed of your normal, like, you know, whether you're seeing, you know, makeup tutorials or whatever it is, or puppies or whatever your TikTok feed is, you're also just seeing like people in Ukraine get on like trains, people crying, people trying to evacuate their animals, their children, their families, um, you know, men saying goodbye to their families because they're staying behind to fight against uh, uh, the Russian invasion. I mean, this kind of engagement is something so new and and really probably something that's going to be studied for a long time. And I think that, like, while it's, you know, one way to view it is, like, of course, like this this individual person, Zelensky, and, and what he's able to convey to uh, European leaders. Another way is just, like, I think probably throughout history, like, anyone kind of saying, like, hey, I'm about to be, like, murdered right now would have had an immediate emotional impact if you could see them in real time on your computer screen versus, you know, a letter or, like, just kind of vaguely know that it's happening. So I, I do think this is probably something that's going to be really impactful for solidarity amongst allies. Um, for, you know, future conflict as well. There's been a lot of talk about what Western intervention might look like. I, I think we've we've tried to make the point that the economic intervention to date is extremely significant, but you're seeing people like Congressman Adam Kinzinger uh, use phrases like no-fly zone. I think Zelensky actually formally requested a no-fly no zone. Zach, you wrote a great piece about why that's a terrible idea but but uh, uh, walk us through what actual military intervention by the West would look like uh, and why it probably won't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to start with the fact that the Biden administration has repeatedly and on multiple levels ruled this out because they're smart, right? This is an awful idea and it mostly seems to be coming either from Ukrainians who are desperate and I understand why they're saying this or Western politicians who should know better and are trying – and, and analysts who should know better and are trying to position themselves in a certain way politically because there is no substantive defense of this that makes any sense. Maybe just explain what a no-fly zone is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I will get into that. I just <laughs> wanted to say a bunch of things first. Sure. Um, a no-fly zone is exactly what it sounds like. Don't let planes fly there. They are not allowed. How do you do that? You put your own planes there and you shoot down any planes that fly there. The U.S. has done this uh, and, it's, and its allies a few times, right? So in Iraq, after the Gulf War, uh, there was a no-fly zone both in the north and the south of Iraq, two separate ones, but really it was sort of the Iraq no-fly zone as a unified thing. You had a no-fly zone in Bosnia in the 90s, and then you had a no-fly zone over Libya in 2011 before the U.S. operation there merged into a full-on regime change operation. But that – as that example illustrates, like no-fly zones and regime change are, are often a distinction without a difference or can be. The Iraq no-fly zones ultimately gave way to the Iraq invasion and that's because they are acts of war, right? As I just suggested a second ago, if you say you can't fly your planes there, you have to either enforce that or let it be an empty promise that doesn't mean anything. Right? And then you're, you don't have an actual no-fly zone. You have a no-fly zone on paper. I put air quotations around that uh, when actually what you're doing is not involving yourself in the conflict at all. So a real no-fly zone, one that's enforced, means that that someone, NATO planes, have to stop Russian planes from flying over Ukraine. The Russians aren't just going to be like, I'm really scared of NATO. I'm going to give up on my entire invasion because the point of this is to defeat their invasion and the Russians really, really care about their invasion. They're going to keep flying and they're going to tell – the U.S. and its allies, shoot us down. Go ahead. Try. And first of all, it's not clear if the U.S. has the planes necessary in theater right now currently. You know, I saw a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force say, we do not. Second, and like more fundamentally, that is war with Russia. You can't just like half measure shoot down a Russian plane. You're killing Russian soldiers. You're destroying Russian planes. You're probably engaging with Russian anti-aircraft mechanisms that don't want you flying there. Like, like a lot of Russians and Americans will die as a result of this. That is what a war is. And so when people call for a no-fly zone, what they're actually saying is they want the U.S. to be a combatant in Ukraine against Russia. And that means war between two nuclear armed powers. Two countries that between them possess 90% of the world's nuclear arsenal. And when conflicts get tense, it's not that anyone wants to use nuclear weapons, though incidentally, Russian strategic doctrine does say if they're losing a conventional war, that they would deploy nuclear weapons on the battlefield to try to shift the balance of conflict. You can do that with these smaller nuclear weapons called tactical nukes. Small nuclear use is bad enough, but in the context of a direct war between two Major nuclear powers, the odds of miscalculation of one side seeing a missile or some kind of other attack as the beginnings of a nuclear onslaught and shooting first are extremely high. I'm not going to say they're 100%, right? It doesn't mean like if we go to war in Ukraine, therefore there is a nuclear war. It's not like that. 
Rather, it's that the odds are, are, are very high right, relative to the baseline that we want. And by very high, I mean the odds of a planet-ending nuclear exchange. I want to underscore the stakes and that this is not hyperbole at all. Usually when people talk like this, they're exaggerating. I am not exaggerating. Nuclear weapons are terrifying. They're terrifying. They don't just have local consequences. The fallout and the environmental damage spreads across the globe. The consequences would be felt of a U.S.-Russian nuclear exchange by everybody on the planet. Okay, And potentially, depending on whose analyses you believe could lead to the end of the human species. This is not a joke. This is not something you mess around with or should posture for political gain about. This is the biggest stakes imaginable. And so when people talk about a no-fly zone, as horrible as the Ukraine conflict is, and as much as I sympathize with the Ukrainians, and I really do, the Russian invasion is a brutal act of imperialist cruelty. It is not worth risking the survival of everyone on the planet, which, by the way, includes Ukrainians. And just to be clear, and this is a very, very one-on-one question, but like the fact that the EU says you can't fly passenger planes in their airspace from Russia has nothing to do with the idea of a no-fly zone. Correct. Correct. Like, except involving error. airplanes. Yes, that, that is right. And and not allowing airplanes to fly in a particular place. Right. Right. But they're no. not going to shoot down Russian passenger right. Austria planes. is not shooting down Aeroflots or, yeah, or whatever. Like, that's not, it's not even remotely in the same ballpark. And I, just, I just feel like there are a lot of people who do not understand the stakes. Yeah. of a military conflict between the U.S. and Russia or like no better, like Adam Kinziger, right? Like I believe he's still in the Air Force Reserve. Yeah. Like he he really does know better and yet he's doing this anyway for, for some reason that I don't understand. And importantly, like Putin sees and at least is saying that he sees this conflict as a civil war, as like an internal conflict and that – any kind of Western or American intervention militarily is going to be viewed by him as the first act of aggression as and, you know, who knows where that goes. But like it is it, it is it is something where even if it did not involve nukes, it is not something that necessarily is just going to be confined to Ukraine if NATO gets involved. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> right. Because there are a bunch of NATO states that are on the border or very close to Ukraine, and Russia has the capacity to strike them. They also have uh, a navy and an air force and intercontinental ballistic missiles. Right, This is like nothing, no kind of conflict the U.S. has engaged in ever, ever. Right, we, We've never been to war with a power like Russia's. Not even World War II when the Japanese struck Pearl Harbor – that was a one-off attack that took a significant amount of planning and did not lead to you know, full-on destruction of the American homeland or significant battles inside American borders. Right? Whereas if you have intercontinental ballistic missiles, it's really easy to reach the U.S. homeland. It, it takes about five minutes for nuclear weapons to fly across the planet. Like, it, it, Really, I cannot emphasize enough how scary this kind of conflict would be and how difficult it would be to keep it contained. And by the way, this cuts both ways, right? So a lot of people are saying things like you need to intervene in Ukraine because if you don't show Putin our resolve, he's going to attack NATO states on Russia's western borders. There's maybe possibly something to that. The political science research on the role of resolve in international conflict and reputation is disputed, I would say, at this point. It's hard to say. But the thing that makes that analysis really wrong is that Putin doesn't want a nuclear war any more than we do. No one can win a nuclear war because even if you first strike successfully, large nuclear powers have what's called second strike capacity, nuclear submarines that wouldn't be destroyed in an attack, hardened ballistic missile silos, that kind of thing that would allow them to retaliate and destroy your homeland in response. So he doesn't want it. He can't destroy the U.S. to begin with. So he is – just as afraid of starting a full-on nuclear exchange as the United States is because he's not suicidal. So I don't think if it's clear that the West has significant troop deployments there, and there are American troops in a lot of these, like in Poland, for instance. Right. There are U.S. troops there. An attack on Poland would be would, would involve an attack on Americans. He doesn't want to do that for the same reasons that American policymakers don't want to get involved in Ukraine. So you don't need – to get involved to establish deterrence, all you need to do is put American troops there and say, we will defend our treaty allies because under the terms of our treaty, an attack on one is an attack on all. That is literally the language and the understanding of, of the way NATO works. So that creates a significant deterrent, totally independent of getting involved in Ukraine. 
One hope would be that while a pandemic is going and the increased risk of a nuclear <laughs> fallout is is happening, that people would become more long term in their thinking. But that's maybe too optimistic for <laughs> for this podcast. And and one one actual last thing, since I know I know we're we're running we're running late, and I'm stressing my producer's patience, but. Um, <laughs> Sort of the the other sort of kind of Western military intervention, and, and it's not like a direct military intervention, but is is arms, um, selling planes, uh, sort of missiles, other things to Ukrainians. Where does that lie on the spectrum between tempting nuclear war and like the least that the West can do? I think, uh, and I really hate talking like this when nuclear weapons are at play. Yeah, I think the risk is pretty low. Right, because it doesn't involve direct combat between NATO and Russian forces. Right, what you're doing is you're figuring out ways to covertly or secretly or quietly get weapons across the border into the hands of Ukrainians. Now, right now, it doesn't even need to be covert because Ukraine controls its borders, and so you can just drop. You can just as long as you can get weapons to the border, you can just dump them over. In the event that Russians establish air superiority, it becomes a little bit trickier because then if they see a column of arms that are bound to Ukraine, they might attack it. And then you might have a situation where some NATO forces get killed there. So you would do it probably covertly and uh, you know disavow any knowledge of, the, oh, there's a rogue arms smugglers. I don't know. I don't have anything to do with that. Um, so there, there are like a lot of off-ramps when it comes to that kind of escalation. And there have been plenty of times in history where nuclear powers have aided forces fighting against another nuclear power with weapons, arms, intelligence, that kind of thing, without it escalating. Vietnam, for example, um, is a good example. Or uh, Afghanistan, Russia's invasion of Afghanistan. Or even the more recent war in Afghanistan where it appears that Russia may have offered bounties on U.S. soldiers. So that intelligence is disputed. Um, the point is indirect proxy conflict even when one country is a direct partisan in it, has a demonstrated like relatively low risk of nuclear war. Not just because it didn't happen. That's a bad way to analyze nuclear risk. The Cuban Missile Crisis by that analysis was a low risk event. It's that none of those evolved into significant nuclear crises, right? There was never a situation while the U.S. was supplying the Mujahideen in Afghanistan where the Soviet Union was like, we're about to nuke you. If you do this, or we're going to punish you in some kind of direct military way, it's it's almost, and this is maybe an overstatement, but it's sort of closer to accurate. It's almost like an understood part of the rules of the game between major powers. It's like we're not going to fight directly, but we're happy to supply your enemies when it suits our objectives. How stable that would be, given that Ukraine is such an, a vital interest to Russia, there's certainly some risk there, but I I actually think it's pretty low ultimately. Okay, we're finally going to take a break. Then we're going to talk about a white paper that I think bears on anti-war sentiment in Russia right now and on wars in the future more generally. So stay with us. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. All right. Our white paper this week is in international organization. It's called Authoritarian Public Opinion and the Democratic Peace. It's by Mark Bell and Kai Quek. Zach, you suggested this. Uh, what does this paper do and, and how is it relevant for, for the conflict this week? It's really interesting. So there's this um, theory in international politics called the democratic peace, which argues that democracies rarely, if ever, go to war with each other. It's very well established statistically. Like There's really strong evidence that this is a real thing. The question is why it happens. And this is 
heavily disputed, right? Like some people think it has nothing to do with democracy. It's just that it happens that a lot of democracies have geostrategic reasons to be aligned with each other. Like they're all members of NATO or the EU. And so they are just like way less likely to go to war than countries that are non-democracies by virtue of where democracy has flourished. Others argue that there are like particular features of democracy that make them less likely to go to war with each other. There's a variety of different theories. I'm partial to one that is relevant to this paper, which is that citizens of democratic countries and leaders of democratic countries believe that it is immoral in some very fundamental way to fight a democracy in the way that it is not to fight an autocratic state because they believe that their leadership has a degree of legitimacy and popular support that autocrats don't. And so this paper is looking at this from a, a different angle. Right? It's like what do citizens in authoritarian states believe? Because it is not the case that democracies in authoritarian countries are less likely to wage war on each other than uh, authoritarian states with each other. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just democracies and democracies that are more peaceful. And so if it is the case that citizens in authoritarian countries have some uh, inclinations towards not wanting to fight democracies, it suggests that that might not be the explanation at work here. Uh, so this paper – set up a uh, survey experiment in China that used language similar to research that had tested public opinion about the democratic peace in the U.S. and the United Kingdom, set up a hypothetical of a country that was maybe developing nuclear weapons, possibly for some reason it's kind of unknown, and just varies in the experiment whether or not it's a democracy or a non-democratic state, and asked Chinese citizens what they thought about uh, going to war with this country, China going to war with this country. There are a variety of technical choices that I think are somewhat interesting. Some undermine the validity of the experiment, some strengthen it. Uh, We can nitpick if we want, but I think like the bottom line finding sort of in descriptive statistics is Chinese public opinion is actually not that different on the topic than public opinion in the UK or the US. And in, in all three countries, citizens are less likely to want to go to war against the democracy in the hypothetical than against the authoritarian state doing the exact same thing. Yeah, and I think one of the things that was interesting for me here is that because public opinion in this paper indicates that within China, they're similarly unlikely to want to go to war against democracies, then is it the case that just Chinese public opinion does not play that much of a role or like opinion, public opinion in autocracies maybe doesn't play as much of a role in whether or not the state chooses to go to war, whereas democratically responsive government has to care a lot about whether people don't want to go to war or not because they're democratically elected and like you might lose your position. Uh, Obviously, that doesn't extend forever because like People could overthrow their own governments. Like even if you're an autocracy, you care about whether or not your citizenry is happy um, for many different reasons. So what do you what do you think about what's going on there? There's a question of how public opinion is transmitted into government policies that you're getting at there, right? So it's not just that like the public says X, therefore governments do Y. Even in democratic countries, right? Like things that are unpopular happen all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Policies, wars that are unpopular happen. Right? It's not just the, the you know direct democracy where the people get a veto. Uh, and so the question is, is there something about authoritarian political structures that make them significantly less responsive to public opinion in this fashion? And like obviously it appears that is the case, mm-hmm. right? And the explanations again are rather obvious even if democracies aren't perfectly reflective of public opinion. It's a hell of a lot more so than a country where if you dissent from the government line, you get jailed. But one thing that the, the authors of this paper note – that's really relevant is that – and Jerusalem, you just hinted at it. It's like authoritarian leaders really do have to care yeah. about public concern, about about public opinion, not just because of the risk of rebellion but because maybe elites don't like it. Maybe it leads to problems with the economy. Maybe it leads to unrest in their cities that damages their ability to focus on the war front. And we're seeing that in, in Russia right now. Yeah. Right? I don't know if it's damaging their focus on the war but there have been – Protests across major Russian cities. Over 6,000 arrests by one estimate. Yeah, it's it's really a remarkable outpouring of opposition to a government that's been extremely effective at suppressing dissent. And so what this paper suggests is that authoritarian countries like Russia engaged in the current conflict bring risks upon themselves when they make war on democracies, right? And there's something really distinct and, and powerful about the democratic idea that even shapes the way the people in authoritarian states think. Again, that doesn't seem to stop them from going to war, but it does suggest implicitly, and I'm putting words in the author's mouth. This is my analysis of their findings, not theirs. But it does suggest that going to war 
creates a level of risk for autocracies when they're fighting a democracy that they might otherwise not mm. experience. And it's interesting, too, because it's it kind of puts into well, what this paper reminded me of is all the times that autocracies have tried to undermine how democratic governments seem or how democratic like the U.S. is, like, for instance, highlighting um, oppression of black Americans during the Cold War, uh, even showing during the racial justice protests of the last couple of years, like those were like heavily popularized in um, autocratic media and, you know, just kind of like saying like, oh, look how hypocritical Americans are. Um, that's like a pretty common refrain. And so part of it is like, I'm not sure if they're like reading the, the social science literature or if it's just like pretty implicitly clear to them that like you need to delegitimize the idea that this democratic project is somehow more legitimate, is somehow more fair, is somehow more just because they understand that it also affects how their own citizenry views um, their own country, their own government. Yeah. Well, and I think this this is something you hear from Putin, especially that he seems to not really believe that true democracies exist. You saw some of this in their reporting around 2016 is that by, by some accounts, the Kremlin didn't expect Trump to win just because they assumed that in Russia, someone who had that degree of elite antagonism toward him would never win. And then so they kind of thought there was a setup um, and they explained some of their response to criticism about their intervention in, in the election is th there's a lot of projection going on where they're like, well, your, your election is rigged anyway. Like, like, why would you mind? Um, like, there, there's, there's a lack of um, ability to comprehend <laughs> that that other systems are actually put up, put together significantly differently. Yeah, it's it's a really important note, I think, as we tend to like one of the sort of cognitive bias fallacies that people fall into in analyzing other countries is that you assume they have a better understanding of your own system than they actually do. And that like we alone have complex internal politics and biases that blind us to the workings of how other countries operate and that we project our understandings of how our system works onto theirs. But other people are just as capable of doing that, other actors as we are, right? And I, it seems like part of the problem in Ukraine or what happened, is a, is a version of that. It's not exactly the same phenomenon, but Putin seems to have concluded that Ukraine was a, a fake government without legitimacy from its own population. And to be fair, his intelligence services did produce a report that suggested that. And my guess is probably played into the decision to wage war in the way that they did. And didn't take into account this democratic legitimacy and nationalist legitimacy that the Zelensky government had. And even though people are dissatisfied with their government's performance beforehand in Ukraine, people are dissatisfied with democratic governments all the time. But that doesn't mean they want to topple them. It means they want to vote for a new one. Uh, and so when you try to attack them, it completely changes the nature of the game. And that also means that he didn't understand how his own population would react and their own beliefs about waging a war of regime change against a democratic neighbor. Something that Russia used to decry, by the way, when the U.S. did it uh, and now just doesn't seem to care about. Vladimir Putin being inconsistent, what can we rely on in this world? <laughs> Who knows? Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Jerusalem Demsis and Zach Beecham for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Our very own woman in STEM, Dara Lind, engineered this episode. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. One quick correction. I looked it up. And while there was an official deal for Pepsi to buy 17 submarines, a cruiser, a frigate, and a destroyer to sell for scrap, the deal fell through. They never actually had the submarines. I feel sorry for Pepsi. Um, <laughs> fake news express. If you uh, have not already signed up for the Weeds newsletter, uh, go to vox.com slash weedsletter. Dara's doing a great job there. She's a woman in STEM and a woman of letters. I believe credit for this last uh, Weeds letter goes to Zach Beecham, who, was, who allowed <laughs> me to adapt a piece of his so that someone could sound smart about Ukraine on the Weeds letter. It takes a village. Really, it does. And that village is called the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs> the Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>